Uncomfortable is a series in the Mississippi Book Festival podcast, Right on Mississippi, which is presented in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Right on Mississippi. This is Holly Lang, the Executive Director of the Mississippi Book Festival, and I am visiting today with Ebony Lumumba, the First Lady of Jackson, faculty member oh, at Tougaloo, and board member for the festival. And we have started a series called Uncomfortable, a conversation between friends and mothers to talk about the current state of racism, anti-racism, and how books can play a part in changing history. So in our first session, Ebony and I talked about um, sort of how we felt about things and and the direction we thought this podcast series should head. And today, we're going to let Ebony do most of the talking, and she's going to recommend several books that she thinks will make a difference in all of our lives. Hey, Ebony. Hey, Holly. Thanks again. This is, I think this is a necessary conversation between regular folks about um, very serious things. That's what should be happening, hopefully will happen, uh, all over the globe, really. It's my hope. And since we're still in quarantine among this other pandemic we're facing, yep. People are reading more than ever. Book sales are pretty high. Um, There's been a big effort to promote um, independently owned black bookstores, which I think is remarkable. I mean, it's all an independent bookstore can do to survive. And so I think we want to point readers to books that um, they may not otherwise read, to authors they may have never heard of, and to increase their libraries and their reading capacities uh, for a better and deeper understanding of Black people, how we got to this point, and how change is possible. So what would you like to start with this morning? So I I think I want to say, you know, we're going to talk about some of, you know, my recommendations for folks to read who simply desire to not even necessarily understand Blackness, but to integrate uh, Black life and and be exposed to the richness of, of Blackness. Uh, in their world, I think that's how we start to move away from the point that we are at, where there's so much intolerance, there's so much hatred, um, and there's so many vile things that surface from not valuing Black life. And so I think to integrate elements of it into what you think about, what you discuss with your families uh, and your children, is one of the things that we can do as everyday folks uh, to to combat uh, racism. And so I want to start by saying we put out a list. Uh, we've got a, a pretty rich, I think, reading list that we are, that's accompanying this podcast for those who are listening. And I think what I want to say about that before we get into talking about some of the books today is that that list isn't exhaustive. So it's not this uh, syllabus or, uh, you know, curriculum that if you read all of this, you will understand Black people. That is not the, that's not the motivation. That's not the purpose. It's simply um, suggested reading and an introduction into how vast and beautiful and worthy and relatable. Mold- I mean, it's a man, yeah. it's a, not a long list. It's, as you said, it's not exhaustive. It's just a no, starting it's point. Long. It's a jumping off point. If people say, what should I read? What could be interesting? And it's yeah. not so long that it will overwhelm you and scare you and make you move on. Um, there are some great titles. And before you start talking about your first book, I know yeah. from my perspective, I remember when I read, um, I know why the cage bird sings and mm-hmm. it opened my eyes. Um, I had read yeah. a lot of um, Laura Ingalls Wilder. I had yeah. read a ton of Willa Cather. 
Um, I had never read a book like that in my life. And, you know, I remember reading it and I read it by myself. I didn't read it in the classroom. There was no discussion of it. Um, and we didn't really talk about it as a family from my personal perspective, just because we didn't, we just all read books. I mean, if you wanted to talk about it, you could, but, um, and it it was eye opening to the multitude of authors out there that it was really, I had to go seek and find, um, and not just trust what was put in front of me to read. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's that intellectual curiosity that I think is lacking in so, so many of us to just be curious about what exists beyond our realities. I think, and this, is, this list is uh, an entry point in, into that for a lot of folks uh, across intersections. So this is not just a list, again, for white people to read and understand Blackness. Again, that's not the motivation, no, but absolutely not. it is. It is a, a list that celebrates uh, Black life and um, how vast and wonderful and beautiful. There's trauma, there's love, there's joy, uh, there's turmoil. There are all of the things that we are used to in all of these great uh, classic novels exist in Black realities as well in nuanced ways. Sure. And so I, I think... Um, you can start anywhere. There's no, it's no specific order for where you should start reading. Uh, and, you know, my hope is that folks start to, to web out and add to this as they discover different identities and icons and lifestyles in these texts and go and do their own research and make their own list. And many of the authors that we're going to talk about, I think we're going to start with a compilation, but many of the authors we talk yeah. about have more than one book. So, you know, it could turn you on to a whole series of books by one author, or you could say, you know, I don't love that, uh, but let me read another book um, by another author and see what I like. So you're, no one's ever sure. boxed into an idea. Yeah, and I mean, these texts don't exist in a vacuum. A lot of them uh, are making references to other texts, other communities, other writers, other time periods. And so there, it's, it definitely exists the possibility for you to link something that's on the list to something that's not, and then go off in a different sure. uh, direction. And I think that's beautiful. I mean, I think that's what, what that, my dear, is called reading, as Toni Morrison <laughs> might say. Yeah. And so, um, and I also mentioned that all of the texts are, you know, focused on writers of color. Sure. And there is, of course, a heavy focus on Black people in America, right, with the African-American communities, but also the African diaspora. So that's this global community of Black people. And although we don't share all of these intersections, anti-Blackness exists everywhere. And so while we're all very different, Black people across the diaspora, there is unfortunately the nexus of being vilified or uh, disregarded because of the color of our skin and our cultural communities. So I really want to start with, I want to kind of uh, an anthology, a compilation of writers, uh, just to kind of demonstrate how multifaceted this list is, that it covers a span of genres. There's poetry, uh, there, there are critical texts, there's fiction. Uh, so Well-Read Black Girl, we mentioned on our first conversation, and it is an anthology edited by Gloria Edom. But inside, I want to mention in our last conversation, I did not mention some of the contributors to this anthology, which really just demonstrate how vast and rich it is. So you've got speculative or what some folks would attribute to science fiction writer N.K. Jemison. Uh, you also have uh, Daniel 
Clayton, who is a YA uh, writer, a young adult writer, and uh, Gabourey Sidibe, an actress, and Jessamyn Ward, a Mississippi writer, Tiari Jones, uh, a writer who has a, her own collection of really beautiful fiction about different aspects of Black history and Black communities. And so uh, there are more Black women who, who contribute to this text, but that's just a sampling of who you're reading when you pick up this compilation. And I want to read just a, a very short quote from the introduction that Gloria Edom produces to give context to all of these contributions. Uh, she says, the authentic and captivating stories created by these authors have been passed down from one generation of Black women to the next and the next. And reading them myself, getting to know them in my own way, their books and profound literary legacy have become my inheritance. And of course, she's talking about writers like Zora Neale Hurston, Alice Walker, Audre Lorde, Maya Angelou, a lot of whom are on our list. And so there are writers who have who are no longer living, but their work is absolutely just as impactful. And I think that quote from Gloria Adam just kind of contextualizes our list for me, that these are stories that have been passed down and uh, they still speak to our realities now. So this book also, I think, represents uh, how accessible reading has become, or at least being exposed to uh, writing that celebrates Black communities, Gloria Adam has created an entire movement sure. called Well-Read, called uh, Well-Read Black Girl, which just the title alone obviously speaks to dismantling uh, this stereotype again that Black women uh, cannot be or are not well-read, or again, if you're reading Black literature solely, that you are not uh, well-read, but it's a movement and it has its own book festival and uh, in paraphernalia. And she has yeah. her club. She has her um, own book club, which is, I think, where this started, right? The yeah, idea for this. Started. And that's how we got to know her for the festival. Um, and she was more than willing to bring in these authors to talk about why they participated in that yeah. um, compilation and why it was important. And I think it's, I think you use a great word with the word inheritance. Um, mm-hmm. At the mm-hmm. book festival, we're pretty sensitive not to use the word heritage. Yeah. Um, it's a loaded term in Mississippi. Yeah, I, well, that's just not something we're comfortable that was saying. Um, but we do have a, a big history in terms of authors who have left us uh, remarkable bodies of work. Oh, yeah. uh, and I think that, I mean, in this current wave, in this current generation, um, there are probably more black authors than white authors, frankly, um, with current work that is going to endure for all time. And I'm glad in some ways that this is happening at the same time because there seems to be a confluence. Um, you know, right now there are five uh, black authors at the top of the New York Times bestsellers list. Yeah. Um, their books are selling out all over the country. I mean, right. this, this is remarkable in terms for books and for publishers and for, for publishing. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's un part of and you know the sad moment is that it's 2020 and this is now just happening uh at the same time it's something to acknowledge and celebrate uh, that these voices have been there and i think that's that that idea of inheritance is that it's passed down that it's generational that it's not this anomaly that black people just started writing and that this writing just got good but that there is this this sort of inheritance of literary prowess and genius and production 
in black communities. And we're just, I mean, I feel fortunate and particularly in Mississippi of all places and at all times that we could name six, seven, eight, nine, ten authors whose books could win national, international prizes. Their their works are really remarkable and timely. Um, And so I I really, in, in that regard, um, and as unfortunate as it is that it's 2020, it, it kind of is interesting to me that this, that it's happened when it has. So we have these authors that we can instantly point to and say, look what, look what they're still doing. Look what, look what they have been um, led to do. They chose to do. I mean, a lot of these authors did not have to come back to Mississippi, um, but they choose to live here. They choose to write here. They choose to talk about um, their past and their history and their, their legacies. And really uh, what, the writers, I think we're both thinking about are reconciling yeah. whatever issues they've experienced here in our home uh, state with their writing and then thus allowing their readership to do the same. Sure. I'm very excited that oh, young yeah. people, you know, in this time where they can read a KSA Layman and Angie Thomas and right. Jesse Ward and Natasha Trethewey. It gives words to kids. I mean, I talk to my teenagers all the time. I'm like, let's do some critical thinking, find some words to talk about what's going on. And, you know, that's not always accessible to to teenagers and to young kids and to young adults. And these writers are giving voice where there has not been a collective sound for a while. So I think this is awesome. Doing it, doing it in really innovative ways. I think um, that kind of brings me to what not a Mississippi writer, but certainly a writer who is engaged and uh, concerned with Mississippi, Ibram X. Kendi, um, in his book, Stamped from the Beginning, which the subtitle of that book really gets to the meat of what this um, really behemoth text <laughs> is about. So the definitive history of racist ideas in America. And he really just pulls to pieces um, the way that racism was constructed intentionally to benefit certain communities and be a detriment to others, which is a conversation that I think everyday people need to have and not wait for politicians to have this conversation or uh, even activists to have this conversation. We need to have a clear understanding of racism as a system and why it came to be in the first place, that it's not something that we you know, we're all born with that it existed before humankind, but that it was created to to achieve a very specific aim. And so uh, when this book was published as a National Book Award uh, winning book by a Black author, a history uh, text, it just, it's a companion to all of the history that we've all been taught in our public or private school systems. And uh, he really engages these historical figures and these historical moments with the understanding that all of this was very thoughtfully uh, composed. And when I talk about this, the system of racism. But I mentioned that text because in conversation with us talking about young people and them absorbing these ideas and finding the words to talk about it because, you know, someone was thoughtful enough to put Jason Reynolds and Ibram X. Kenny together. Jason Reynolds, uh, another young adult uh, author and Eva Max Kendi together, and they produced this remix to Stamp from the beginning called Stamped, which is accessible to young people. And I don't know about you, Holly, but this is the first time I've ever seen 
anything like this. Collaboration like this. A collaboration like this where they're virtually sitting together rewriting this uh, very intense and loaded text to make it palatable to younger audiences because the subject matter is so critical. So important, yeah. So critical. And so you've got Stamped, which uh, another beautiful sort of moment of kismet is that this book, uh, I think was released like March 10th, or but it's in the midst of everybody hunkering down because of COVID-19. And so they are able to do, they have to cancel all of these in person um, engagements that they were planning, but then there are all these virtual moments that are recorded and accessible from cell phones and laptops and tablets. And so you have this text that is made accessible because now it's a remix written by a, a YA author. And then now it's transformed into these talks and these panel discussions that we can stream into our home. And there are moments on social media that help to unpack or engage the text. So I think that's brilliant. You know, and I think that's one of the things that the goal of the festival has always been is to connect readers um, with their favorite authors. And there's a magic that happens when um, anyone gets to meet the person who's written a book that they love. And there's yeah. a sort of shock and awe moment and they're so happy. And then they, they, they start talking. I mean, I remember the first time one of my, I met one of my favorite authors and she said my name and I thought, Ooh, I heard Life her. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, in March when this happened and uh, Kendi's book came out, I followed him on Instagram and I followed Jason Reynolds mm -hmm. on Instagram and they were both doing interviews and readings and all of a sudden they were together yeah, and that magic happened again. I mean, it was very relatable. It was not intimidating. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that both books are completely sold out across the country. Um, it, it's an important, it, it's, a, it's almost a gift in a way because yeah. it, for people who otherwise would not pick up that book, it's, it's piqued some curiosity. And they couldn't have gone on, a, on the road to festivals and bookstores and created the same kind of enthusiasm that they have through social media. I just don't yeah. think so. I mean, it's remarkable. No, I agree with you. And here's the thing, right? Like one of the silver linings to the, this sort of bleak reality we're, we're living within in terms of COVID-19 is that we've had to tear down the walls of these conferences and festivals and all of these other spaces that people are intentional about inhabiting. But we, if we're honest with ourselves, it's just not accessible to everyone. Everyone. And everyone. now when folks can, you know, experience this again from their cell phone or tablet, then you've got a larger audience to engage. And so I think that's one of the benefits of the timing of when this uh, book came out and the way that they had to pivot in order to do marketing. And it turned into this necessary conversation about race relations that wasn't yet happening when right. the book dropped, but right in the middle of promotion, it all kind of imploded on us. And so I'm really excited for, again, these other ways to access these resources, uh, some of which are present on our reading list, which brings me um, to our Mississippi writers. And again, I'm, I'm thrilled that these young people who are, young people specifically, are living at a time where these authors are not only still writing, but they are moving about the cabin, so to speak. I mean, they are showing up at schools. They're showing up uh, in these sessions and talking about their work 
you've got Angie Thomas with her um, inaugural text, The Hate You Give, Thug, uh, as we affectionately refer to it, and uh, intentionally so, and then it being produced into a motion picture. And so, and then we find ourselves in this moment that we witnessed in, in a fictional sense in her text. And so it's a book that I've been teaching with for about, um, since, you know, it was published, since it was accessible to the public. And so now uh, my students are making their, are drawing their own conclusions about the state of race relations and their role in it, what they can do, what they uh, don't feel uh, encouraged to do, be, and have a conversation about this text. And so what Angie did for us is very similar to what Ibram X. Kendi and Jason Reynolds sure. did for us, right? Provide us almost with a, a manual and a journal, so to speak, so that we can engage our feelings, but also figure out what to do before we knew we were gonna need to do it again, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Okay, one more time. So, you know, Angie wrote this book and it, you know, it's what, three years old? Four years old? It's three, 2017. Okay. Yeah, three years old. And we didn't realize we were going to have a moment like uh, George Floyd that would remind us so much of Khalil's death in the book. Our young people have been reading this book and didn't realize they were going to have a moment to be star uh, in their communities, you know, in the way that it happens and the hate you give. So she gives us one, this manual for what we can do, especially young people, what they can do, and also this moment where we can engage our emotions and cry and still find time for Black joy and memory that we didn't know we were going to need three years before we needed it, if that makes sense at all. And and then, you know, the film is just another way to access access, uh, the themes that are very real for our young people right now, all of us, but certainly them who may not have seen it in the way they're seeing it now before. And you know, when you talk to Angie and, she, and you hear her tell the story, um, there are two stories that I, I love that she tells. And one is, but the one that catches me in this current conversation is that this book was not written from a futuristic standpoint. I no. mean, it, it had already happened. Right, uh, it, right. It, um, this is not stuff that she dreamed up and thought, well, maybe one day, no. Um, this is this has been going on for generations yeah so I that she really and you know that she laughs because I when we I interviewed her one time uh, at the movie release yeah and she said you know what people what surprises her readers most is that people realize when they meet her they're like you're a 30 year old woman mm-hmm. <laughs> they think she's this 18 year old writer that's just hit the scene it's remarkable um, to me because I mean she she accesses that mindset so brilliantly so, yeah. Yeah. And particularly then with her, um, with uh, the next book with Thug Life, I mean, it, it really is. Um, oh, uh, with uh, On the Come Up. Yeah. On the Come Up. I'm sorry, not Thug Life. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, um, she really has a gift. Um, and I hope that either between the book. Yeah. And she, she talks about, you know, her concern being able to relate to the community for which she writes specifically, right? This demographic of young people. But, you know, it was, it was altering for me when I read The Hate You Give because I realized that I'm the age of Star's parents. <laughs> and, you know, you immediately just want to relate to the protagonist. But Star. Yeah, I was like, oh, okay, I'm Maverick. And Lisa. Uh, so, <laughs> which the, her third book 
is about uh, is the coming of age of Maverick, Concrete Rose. And for her to reference uh, Tupac specifically in the title of The Hate You Give and in Concrete Rose speaks to how this book wasn't written with the future necessarily in mind, but the past still, still very visible and um, visceral in our rear view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a scary reality, but I think it's something that we can learn from. Also reference, I think it's, it's always um, interesting when she talks about surprising folks with this book not being about her, that she did not lose a friend this way. Right. Uh, and so she has to answer those sorts of questions. Uh, but now we're in a space where we're kind of all grappling with feeling like we're losing these people that remind us of people we do know. And that, that being heartbreaking. Um, and then also you have writers like Jessamine Ward, who very much are writing from their experiences Absolutely. of trauma and loss, uh, especially with the men we reaped, uh, which is on our list. And her just talking about the various and sundry ways that uh, society wipes out Black men. Uh, and, you know, to hear her talk about it uh, in person is jarring and to read about it uh, is, is you, you, you can't help but have that same reaction. And so when folks engage this list, you know, there is no way if you truly engage this list and you truly pull out these texts, there's no way that it's not going to, it's not going to alter your perspective about who we have been as a society and how we need to change. So I, when I'm the first time I met Jasmine, I had was probably midway through the men we reap and she was pregnant with her second child. Mm-hmm. And I saw this beautiful diminutive, tiny little woman pregnant yeah. out, you know, with a wide circumference. And I thought, how did she reach down, dig deep down that inside and write this book? I mean, where did all this tragedy come from? And that's her life. I mean, it is, that's been her life. That's been her life and that's her reality. Uh, and it's, heartbreaking uh and it's um it's um you know gut-wrenching to read and then when you know her to think that really is her reality um it makes it even more stark i mean real um all of these things so i'm glad that these authors are still in mississippi and they're still writing who i am too i'm glad they haven't given up on mississippi which is to say that you know we're not hopeless and neither perhaps is the nation right this is not hopeless if we're no. willing to do the work, right? If we're willing to do the work, there, there, there. I think that that that's what the whole. I mean, I think that's what Angie went through a phase. I think she was going to move to Atlanta, and I think she still might move. Um, mm-hmm. And Jasmine is pretty much committed mm-hmm. to the coast. Mm-hmm. So you know, I hope that they stay. Um, and Kia say, you know, I don't know what he's going to do. Um, from a very selfish standpoint, you know, I'm not from Mississippi. Uh, I choose to live here, and I'm staying here. Yeah. Um, I, I hope that they choose to stay and to write um, and to continue to make the, a, a tremendous difference um, because I think it's going to be the next generation. And I think they are reaching the next generation every single minute of the day with their writings and their books and their social media. Um, and it, I think that will, that's our opportunity. I will say this, you know, obviously none of us know what, you know, their, where their careers or their lives or their families will take them. Uh, but what they've contributed thus far, I can't ask any more no. uh, of them. And, you know, as a native Mississippian, I chose to move back. I was gone for 10 years and I chose to move back and I'm not going anywhere. Um, this, this is my motherland, so to speak. So 
you know, a part of generations of people who intentionally uh, stayed in this space for one reason or the other. But I think they have given us a, a, a hope chest sure. filled with narratives and oh. realities that we needed that are going to take us where uh, we need to go, regardless of where they find themselves. And they're all very much still committed to the state. So, um, so. they but, can't stay away. <laughs> Even if they don't live here, I don't think they'll ever stay away. I hope they don't. But, you know, it's like when we were talking about the festival earlier in in Mississippi's history, um, this is the new history. These are the writers who, as you say, if they don't write anything else, um, we have gifts from them that we will talk about for generations. For sure. In a way that we still talk, that we're talking about Richard Wright, who left, right? In the way that we talk about Margaret Walker, who uh, who's a transplant. Uh, to Mississippi, we're still unpacking Uncle Tom's children from 1938, I believe it was. So uh, th- we have a, we have generations to really appreciate and talk about what they produce. Natasha Trethewey isn't here, but she her heart is very much, I believe, still here, and that's evident in her work. And so um, you know, you just can't escape perhaps those ghosts of Mississippi, and all of them are not malevolent ghosts. No, they are yeah. not. And so um, we can talk about that as a, as a heavy segue, right? But you brought up Willa Cather earlier, right? Like having oh, Willa, Willa Cather, um, who I think produced, uh, you know, great literature for us understanding uh, the 20th century and society and place and identity. But uh, when I think of her, I think of one of her least appreciated or read texts, uh, Sapphira and the Slave Girl. And that's not on our list. I don't, I'm not recommending it, but I am recommending uh, Toni Morrison playing in the dark where she unpacks Willa Cather's writing of Sapphira and the Slave Girl. Uh, And so we have Toni Morrison, one of the icons of American literature, you know, without a doubt. It's that's that there's no contest to that. But she uses this, this critical text, Playing in the Dark, Whiteness and the Literary Imagination, to discuss the way that this Africanist presence, this uh, essence of Blackness has existed in literature, although it hasn't been always the focus, right? There haven't been these centralized black characters or Black themes or issues that, you know, looking critically enough and acknowledging that America doesn't exist Black people, it never has. So uh, what Toni Morrison unpacks there in using in her first chapter, uh, Willa Cather, Sapphira and the Slave Girl is the way that we find blackness in, the, in places where it wasn't intentioned to be the focus, the focus rather, um, which I think is useful because we can go back and read things that if this list is unfamiliar to you, there's a list that is familiar to you. And there's something to, to, to acknowledge there and gain understanding from, again, about the presence of Blackness in uh, literature, that it's always been there. So I think Morrison just helps us think about that in a very intentional way. What's next? What's next? So we're all over the place on purpose, right? This is very intentional that we've gone from poetry, fiction, and motion picture to critical works and memoir. Memoirs, and yeah. uh, looking at uh, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow is taking us to sort of a political 
text. So we kind of broached that subject with uh, Kendi's stamp from the beginning and talking about the the history and the, def- the definitive history of racist ideals. And what Michelle Alexander does is engages mass incarceration. And there's some historicity there in terms of how its uh, existence is stacked against a specific demographic of people, and that's Black men. Uh, the fact that Black men represent almost 40% of the U.S. prison population, there has to be a reason for that that is not solely connected to this idea that Black maleness means criminality. So what Michelle Alexander does is uh, paint a very clear picture of how specific policies and uh, racist policies, right, and uh, institutions have created this reality that although Black men don't represent a majority of the American population, they represent a, 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 a deep, uh, they de- represent a deep percentage of the U.S. prison population and how problematic that is. And uh, so tying that to Black slave codes and uh, slavery and all of those sort of moments that lead to what we find to be the case now, Again, and we can connect this to what we're seeing on our news outlets, that this cry that Black Lives Matter is connected to this notion that there has been this built-up narrative that you can throw away Black people, and in Michelle Alexander's uh, text, Black men specifically, into the system that they can never be released from and justify it because of who they are. I mean, we can connect that to Ahmaud Aubrey. Yeah. The just assumption that he was a criminal and that being the justification for taking his life. Um, so this text was eye-opening to me and it's not one of our newest texts. Uh, these, the, the books on our list span time. Right. So we've got, you know, we've got Nella Larson and Zora Noel Hurston, writers who were writing in the early um, 20th century during the Harlem Renaissance and Langston Hughes. And then we've got writers who just published works this year or five years ago. So in 2010, uh, Michelle Alexander's text hit the scene. And it was really eye-opening to me because there were things that I knew. There was so much that I didn't know that tied to statistical data and the way that archetypes are uh, created, the way that myths like Mammy are created, the way that myths that Black women are these sort of jolly, ready to serve uh, nurturing figures and then that being used to sell pancake batter and syrup sure. and those sorts of things. Yeah, the same sort of myth exists about Black men that tie them to being uh, criminals, to being oversexed or to, to being anything that, that society has uh, deemed unsavory. Right. And then that linking them to a, a system that is funded by these sort of ideas. So it is really an eye-opening text. It's and I remember meeting her. I think she's come to the festival and we talked to her one time. Yeah. I think her her panel is on one of our videos. It was eye-opening to me, um, not only that not necessarily the perpetuation of those ideals and those laws and the I, I had in my mind it was a cycle of education, poverty, environment, all of these things that led to incarceration. Um it was eye-opening sort of, I think, the same way for, maybe for the same way for you, in that those laws were put into place and those policies were put into place before those, those Black men who went go to prison were ever born. I mean, they were just, yeah. it, 
it was going to happen no matter what to them in some cases. Yeah, stacked this that these odds are stacked against this uh, community, right. and again, it pointed to this very intentional, you know, structuring or putting together of a system that would feed some and starve others. And what I think Michelle Alexander achieves, there's almost this vindication in her text that, you know, we knew that this was unfair. We knew that this did not look right, that Black men represent such a large percentage of the U.S. prison population. I would have said it was even higher, frankly. Yeah, it's probably uh, higher. My stats may be off at this point, uh, which is, is devastating. But it was this vindication, like we knew it was wrong, but she's you know, spelling out, this is why, and this is the history of that. So that text, um, I, I mean, it's, it's brilliant in its own right. And then we have texts that go into other uh, aspects of our social realities, like food and the history of food in the Black and African American community as it is acknowledged or unacknowledged Perfect. in uh, America. So we've got the cooking gene, Michael Twitty, uh, who spends a lot of time in Mississippi. We love Michael Twitty, and I love that. We love Michael Twitty, yeah. And this text, it's a, it's a culinary history. It is. It's a culinary history, and so... Uh, Very clear. Not a cookbook, no. It's a culinary history. And so what we have is just this history of the food that sometimes has been co-opted by Southern culture, that this is just Southern food. Uh, having this very real connection to the transatlantic slave trade and people who were kidnapped and brought over inhumanely on ships and this food, uh, this food narrative staying with them in ways that, you know, sustained culture or the ways that we as Black people have been able to piece together um, a history that was stolen. And so um, the subtitle, A Journey Through African-American Culinary History in the Old South, uh, sort of says it all that there is this sort of underlying acknowledgement that Southern food has uh, African, but where do you, where do we really see that talked about in mainstream and acknowledged in culinary communities or just in our everyday conversation? So these foods that have been passed down through your family, no matter what you look like, do we know the origins of them? I think it's valuable to know the origin of, of everything that we engage and we tie some sort of identity practice. I think Mississippians probably have a better understanding of where that food, the food history. Um, comes I, hope so. I think that the rest of America may not, they make a lot of assumptions. Um, and, but what Michael Twitty's book, I mean, he was, he, you know, I've known um, Marcy Cohn Ferris, uh, and I've read her cook, her books and her narratives that she's written. Um, and it, you know, those, those are the types of books to me that talk that I can identify with. And, and it reaches all of humanity. When you start talking about food and how recipes came to be and how they were carried on, how they were modified, how, why people grew certain, certain types of food. Yeah. It, it really is just a, it's, it's an opportunity to understand something different from what you know in a very relatable format. It's food. It's food. It's something that we all need to survive, but it also uh, creates this uh, reality for food to be resistant to oppressive systems. So maintaining these food ways and these recipes allow for generations of people to hold on to some aspect of their culture that was wiped out. Yeah. Um, And so you know, there's, there's even the possibility to eat differently once you have the knowledge that exists in a, in a text like Twitty's. 
to, to eat differently with a more deliberate, uh, with more just deliberate acknowledgement of what you're eating and why it exists where it exists. Right. And it sounds like a heavy lift, right? You just want to eat good food, but uh, food has meaning uh, as well. And so some of these resistance movements we're seeing now are not brand new. They just have looked different ways. And some of them have looked like recipes that have persisted. Some of them have looked like, you know, food ways and food culture that did not die out. And I think, I think this is an opportunity for people who think, I don't want to read about Jim Crow laws or I don't want to read about an 18 year old, but do you want to talk about food? Okay. So here's an avenue. Um, here's a resource. Here's a book uh, that will provide you another opportunity to get to know the black culture better. Um, if this, if that's of interest to and get to know, right here, here it is, Holly, like to get to know how black culture is already intertwined and inculcated into your reality Absolutely. and it's just been unacknowledged. So it's that playing in the dark that Toni Morrison talks about. It's already there. This book is going to draw out what it is that you've been experiencing that you didn't even realize that is linked to blackness. And we've talked and how beautiful about, it is. We touched on this last week in our last episode about how racism affects us, even if we don't know it, even yeah. if we don't understand it. And, and worse so if you don't know it, right? The effects, the effects are often worse if you don't know it. Absolutely. Well, it's devastating. Look where yeah. we are. Sure. If you can't find it somewhere else, you can find it when we talk about food. I mean, I think that there's an opportunity here. So definitely an opportunity there. I want to acknowledge um, one of our global writers, because I started off talking about that there's authorship from outside the African-American community, but that goes into the African diaspora, this global community of Black people. Right. Uh, Chimamanda Adichie's The Danger of a Single Story, uh, which I think draws out how marginalized and uh, discounted Black culture has been, not only in literature, but just in dominant manifestations of society. Um, and so she does that with that very brief text, which is a transcript. So this is another way that uh, these texts are accessible in other ways. It's a TED Talk on YouTube that you can watch. I don't even think it's 30 minutes long. Yeah, it's not that long. Uh, where she draws our minds into our own bias and how it manifests and what it does and what resisting it, uh, benef how it, you benefit from resisting it. So I wanted to acknowledge that because uh, we did mention the African diaspora and it's important to have a bevy of voices creating for you the narrative of the reality of who black people are in all of these, all of these very uh, myriad, myriad existences or realities. I want to touch on, I think we're running out of time, but this bridge called my back, which is another compilation of black or, or writers who are women of color okay. that's on our list. And I think that, also gives some context for it. It builds that foundation to understand why certain communities, especially communities of color, have always sort of felt the pressure that exists now, that this isn't a new feeling, have always felt ostracized in the way that's being drawn out now. So this bridge called My Back speaks specifically to women of color having to bear uh, being forced to bear all of these sort of social atrocities, it just sort of being relegated to uh, women of color handling certain things, whether it be, you know, being wet nurses for white families or uh, taking caring for white children, being uh, domestic um, 
workers in, in a certain capacity or just being disregarded for uh, what women of color have sought in terms of uh, what our freedom should look like. And so I think that's a wonderful text that you can also read in pieces. Just pick out a compilation based on the table of contents. It's not something that you could, you should, or that you have to sit down and read in one fell swoop, but there's poetry here. There's critical thought here. There's um, not necessarily memoir, but personal experience just, uh, you know, in a, a written form, almost kind of like peeking into uh, someone's journal and there are writers that are still living and there are writers who have who have gone on but produced really phenomenal things like Tony Cade Bambara so that's another text it lends to some understanding of the foundations of the frustration of communities of color right now and before before now that I think is important and it's also accessible and there are entry points there to be to feel related to some of the experiences of these women right so how are you feeling about things now today uh, still very heartbroken, and I don't think that that is that's not a new feeling for me or uh, my family or my larger community. Uh, it hurts, especially you know we talk we started this conversation on our last episode we're talking about being mothers, mm-hmm. and so uh, my children are small, but understanding that I have to unpack these moments with them and for them now in some ways because they catch us watching the news and you know my oldest wants to know what's happening and I owe her the truth uh and also in ways that we're still having to have the talk about it's not a compliment to be told you're pretty for a black girl and uh you are going you may experience these sort of things or this is what this meant when this classmate or their their parents said this to you uh, I'm heartbroken because it won't be, what we're dealing with won't be annihilated, I, I don't think, in our lifetime or theirs. So uh, while I'm committed to doing work to dismantling piece by piece, brick by brick, a system that oppresses, the reality in knowing that I'm going to need my children and their peers' help to do it is heartbreaking. I want um, better for them, and I'll share, my mother, uh, we, my husband and I participated in a local Black Lives Matter march. And um, my mom expressed her sadness and heartbreak in that she had participated in similar marches when she was sure. younger and that my grandmother and great-grandmother had had to do the same thing. And so it's just, it, it's sobering to realize that this is a long game. Sure. But also I feel very committed, so... Uh, that may not have been the hopeful answer you were looking for, but the, honest it's the reality, yeah. No, I need the honest, we all need to hear the honest answer. You know, it is, I remember, um, I think you and I talked right after the march, and you we talked about how you were frustrated with the, um, the, the generational nature of this, that you had, that, and I think, you know, I, I have a feeling that probably mothers like us, two or three generations ago, we're probably having very similar conversations. Sure. Um, our hope is that every conversation breaks away at the barriers um, and, yeah. and it becomes easier to talk about and easier to, to, to and to not easier, um, but you know, that eventually that wall will break down. And I will say this, that, I mean, there is a glimmer of hope in that we are, because we're all kind of still trapped at home and we're having to watch a lot of this unfold on social media or on television. I really feel like this is the first time we've seen this 
large of a demonstration of solidarity from communities outside of black communities. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's visual, you can see it. And I mean, I think the, the statistics are something like 61% of folks who are participating in demonstrations across the country are white. Sure. And so, which I think is equitable, right? Um, and so there is something there that even my, my father who lived in Mississippi during Jim Crow, he's a little boy, but uh, he remarked on how remarkable that is and how this was a new uh, picture for him in terms of how we're combating these, these uh, oppressive systems. It was so more, than, more than what he has seen before. Yeah, he just had never seen anything like it um, before. And this is uh, my dad who remembers being uh, shooed away from restaurants in Jackson because he was a little black boy, um, shooed away from the front door, even if he wasn't attempting to go in. He had unrest about me attending the University of Mississippi for my graduate degree because he remembers watching what happened to James Meredith on television at a little boy, as a little boy and being terrified. And, you know, this is some, you know, however many years later it was, but those feelings stayed with them. So for him, and I think a lot of his peers, they're looking at this through a different lens and seeing something that they've not seen before. And I think there's something to be hopeful about there. Well, we're going to keep the conversation going. Yes, we um, must. And I think I get to retire from the podcast life, thankfully. I'm, Never. I'm still qualified to do this. He might drag you back in, Holly. Maybe I like talking to you. But I do think that you're, so you are going to engage a few of our contemporary writers. Yes. Um, I think we have some other things coming up. We will release this one and then we will, we're just going to take it as it comes since we're not having a festival this year. We're, um, we love podcasts. They're easy to do. Um, it allows for lots of different types of conversations, um, particularly around books uh, and the, you know, books have always opened minds and doors. Um, And I think that we will continue to identify books for our listeners. Absolutely. The list is growing list will grow. And so we will have Ebony updates uh, from time to time. Yeah. We'll refresh it and we'll put it on our social media. And of course, it'll be linked to the podcast. So for those of you listening and you want to check out these books, just know that we'll, we'll refresh it from time to time. Absolutely. Uh, and you should check back in. Ebony, thank you. I know that as a mom, you've got to go. You've given it more than an hour of your day. And I'm sure those <laughs> ones are hovering nearby. I think you can hear them, you know, screaming and playing in the background. No, I can't hear it. Hopefully, it's the soundtrack of my life. It is. And that's a good thing. That's a sweet Uh sound. It is. It is. All right. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for your your commitment. And uh, we'll talk again soon. We'll be uncomfortable together. Yes, ma'am. Uncomfortable is a series in the Mississippi Book Festival podcast, Right on Mississippi, which is presented in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting.